This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Good morning. poet I was reading yesterday, Naomi Shihab Nye, you know, each summer she and I teach at our monastery, Tassahara. And a couple of years ago, as we were walking out to start teaching, she said to me, um, I'm really apprehensive about, uh, about going to teach. And I thought she was kidding me, you know, because, you know, she's one of these people who has this long list of awards and, you know, <coughs> she was a Guggenheim Fellow and a Library of Congress Fellow and all that sort of stuff. And she's written about 25 books. But anyway, as she was working out, she said this. And she said, no, 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 I'm really, I, I don't know anything, and I have nothing to teach. <laughs> and, and then I saw she was serious. And by that point, we were about almost at the door of the room we were going to end to teach. And, uh, and, uh, and I was thinking of something reassuring to say, you know. And I think I ended up saying, well, let's just go in and see what happens. <laughs> you know, something really helpful like that. <laughs> and we went in, and she has this peculiar thing she does. She has a, a collection of table napkins, you know, some of them are embroidered. Some of them are lacy. And every time she goes to teach, she puts one of them down, and then she arranges all these pieces of paper around it. It's a newspaper clipping, a poem, you know, something she scribbled down, all this stuff. And then she teaches. And true enough, true enough to who she is, once she got going, she like took off and was her usual charming, creative, uh, alluring self. Um, But, but that way, you know, we're, as we're navigating our life, you know, we're, we're putting ourselves together, and, and sometimes um, our own story is taking us apart. And uh, 
in how so much of our energy goes into one or other, you know, putting yourself together or criticizing yourself for somebody else, some other aspect of your world. Um, and then interestingly, in the realm of practice, you know, we could say practice is about getting yourself into trouble. You know? it's like, as your mind keeps saying, well, this is reality. You know, practice says, oh, really? No, this is reality. Oh, really? This is what should happen. Oh, really? This is my judgment. Oh, really? You know? But if you don't have the solidity, if you don't have the, the assurance of your own constructs, what do you have? Yeah. And this is the dilemma of practice. Because usually we're either constructing it um, deciding it's wrong and trying to change it, suppress it, control it. Or we're in um, a kind of quagmire. We're just a little confused and disoriented. Um, In a way, practice is trying to introduce an alternative to all of that. Unfortunately, Lao Tzu wrote a poem that's going to elucidate this. The uses of what's not. Thirty spokes meet at the hub. Where the, where the wheel isn't, is where it's useful. Hollowed out, clay makes a pot. Where the pot's not, is where it's useful. Cut doors and windows to make a room. Where the room isn't, there's room for you. So the profit in what is, is in the use of what isn't. Profit with an F. The profit of what is, the benefit of what is, is the use of what isn't. Um, like when, when, with awareness, instead of being in this story, we see the story. Then it becomes a teaching rather than a conundrum, rather than um, a limited construct that we have to try to make definitive of reality. You know, what we think, what we feel, what we anticipate, what we remember, you know, they're all limited constructs. 
they're not the whole story. And when we see them, each of them has something to teach us. You know? we, when you see and feel how the story is significant, you know, Like you think in Naomi, and you think, you know, by 20 years ago, Bill Moyers, who's, I don't know if he's, have you heard of Bill Moyers? No? Bill Moyers is, is a very well-known personality in public television in the United States, you know, considered to be, you know, one of those authentic, wise voices. And he did do a series on upcoming poets and Naomi was featured very significantly and that actually launched her as a poet. Um, and, and, and then ever since then, you know, all sorts of accolades. And she's probably taught in 25, 30 countries around the world. And yet, still inside a voice that says, you're no good. You know? You know? When you stand outside of it and you're not living that reality, it's kind of amazing. How could you think that? How could you feel that? How could you tremble before a workshop when you've taught? hundreds of workshops in 20 countries. But you know, our, our voice, it has its own persuasion. When you tell yourself you're no good, you're inadequate, you're a fake, whatever, whatever that secret, terrible message is you have for yourself. <laughs> then it, it's persuasive. Uh, it's persuasion, it's conviction, um, is authoritative. And yet, if you see it, if rather than being inside it, they're seeing it, there's a kind of space that holds it. Yeah. Then it becomes an extraordinary instruction about who you are, how you navigate your life, what's powerful and meaningful within you. And this spaciousness, you know? you know, that's what appeals to me about that poem. He's talking about the function of the spaciousness in, in that way of being. You know, it's the space in the clay pot that makes it useful. 
It's the empty hub that makes the wheel fit on an axle. You know. It's the way in which we can have some space around who we are, what we are, what's coming up. That, that shifts it from being another way we get hooked, another story we fall into, and then either we're defined by it, or we're fighting against it, or fixing it, or we're trying to fix this story with a better story. And awareness is just saying, pause, notice what's going on. Make contact experience. I sort of made that up as a version of an early Buddhist teaching. And in Thich Nhat Hanh's version of the same teaching, the last one he says is nirvana. Where I say contact, experience, he says something like heal and experience nirvana. Experience the cessation of wanting it to be different. But as long as we're, we're caught up in this story, this the story has its own um, demand, you know? And when we see this story, inside, you know, we make more sense to ourselves. Oh. I have a tendency to say I'm not good enough, so when I go to teach a workshop, I have this deep apprehension. And then traditionally, within both the Zen school and other Buddhist meditation schools, the body breath as like a core practice that in our moments where we don't know which end is up, we can come back to something tangible. You know? When you can't figure out what the hell's going on, you still have a body. You're still breathing. Yeah. It's like it's the rudder that keeps steering us forward. <clears throat> And then not only that, it's a bottomless practice because the body, you know, also expresses the somatic nature of our being. You know, the, the body also in its physicality expresses the physicality of here and now. The body is tangible, you know, 
the embellishment of the thoughts and the feelings and the memories and the anticipations, you know. I mean, it's extraordinarily complex. You know, there's no end to what it can create. And so to create this basis of body-breath, and then we breathe into it, we give life to the physicality of being. Or we don't, you know. The nature of a panic attack is that the breath becomes constricted. A full, intense panic attack is, it feels like it's going to kill you. And then the other side of it is like when, you, when we let the body breathe, it's like we're inviting a reassurance into being. So this body breath is this extraordinary ally. No. way beyond what uh, admonitions we can create in our mind. And, and as we enter more fully into practice, uh, both through our own marvelous creative capacity to get ourselves into trouble, but this kind of existential dilemma too, you know, the more we pay attention, the more we're going to see, I'm making this up. <laughs> this is my own genius of creation, you know, what's arising now. And if such is our disposition, that we're hooked in making what I make up work, making what I make up be the whole story, um, it will always confound us, it will always come up short. You know? And in an extraordinary way, that's what brought us to practice whether we realized it, whether we saw it clearly or not. You know? We made up the self, we made up the world, and then we lived according to its absolute dictums. And we discovered it wasn't enough. It was too limited, it was too unsightful. Something different needed to be added to it. And, and, and so the technical term in Buddhism is shunyata. You know, that in the midst of all the ways we define and create reality, they're just constructs. You know, in the last couple of days I was talking about when we really get into it, we see it's dynamic, it's not solid. 
You know, your emotional life is always fluid. Even what you're thinking about is fluid. Sometimes mysteriously so. You know. What were all the things you thought about in the last period of zazen? Hmm. <laughs> Amazing. But they are all expressive of the nature of being. So as we start to settle, something in us is starting to shift what it's relying upon, where it's placing its truth. Yeah. And we're starting to shift from the reality as I say it is, to the experience of what's coming up. And, you know, in, in one clumsy way we could say, well, we're shifting from trusting the self to trusting the no-self. You know, we're, we're talking about um, You know, th this way we conjure up a me. And, and then everything can find its relevance in terms of me. And as we enter awareness, the notions of me are just part of the fabric of the moment that's being woven in a moment. my ideas. Yeah. A couple of hours into the workshop, I turned to Naomi and I said, how are you doing? And she just laughed. Because I could see uh, one of her admirable traits is she's intrigued by people. And as soon as she realized that she was teaching people and not some scary monster of her own creation, it's like, oh, it's people in this room. <laughs> I love people. <laughs> but I'm left to my own devices. It's not people. It's a scary monster. I don't know what the monster does. Maybe it judges her. Maybe it wants to devour her. So normally, usually we're creating something very solid. And as we pay attention, we can start to see the creation, we can start to see the process of creation. And as we settle into Sashin, you know, sometimes it feels in, in, in the abundance of all the thoughts and feelings, um, there is no clarity, there is no awareness. You know? 
It's, it's just this ephemeral moment that gets swallowed up by the creations of me. And, and usually we're misguided in that way because um, we have a glorious notion of what awareness looks like, you know. It has bands of angels and sparkling golden light and, uh, you know, an effervescent um, goodness and pleasure. Holy pleasure, not sinful pleasure. <laughs> but actually, awareness, it's, it's a tawdry business, it's a dirty business, you know, like, oh, you're aware of this little sneaky judgment, or you're aware of this little annoyance. Why is he talking so loud like that? Why, I'm meditating, you know, why doesn't he realize that? Oh, I'll just move my back like this, and then it'll be in exactly the right place. Hmm. <laughs> That's awareness, you know. Stomach rumbling, that's awareness. <laughs> so part of it is we have to lower our standards. <laughs> really low. <laughs> when you're aware, you're thinking or f noticing some stupid television advert song is going through your head, it's still awareness. You know? Maybe you're telling yourself it ought to be, you know, some wise Buddhist thing that's going through your head. So along with patience for the human condition, there's a kind of shamelessness, you know? You know, we're a peculiar mix. You know? I remember reading a piece by this writer once, and he was in an accident, and he thought he was going to die. And he said, what came to mind at the moment he thought he was going to die was, Ah, caramba! <laughs> <laughs> then later, you know, it didn't kill him. <laughs> but but he, he, he survived. And he says, can you imagine the most profound thought I could come up with at the moment of death was, Ah, caramba! <laughs> says, what, does hmm? what does that mean? Does it mean anything, or is it just? That I, I, according to him, he, he, it was like something he'd heard in a, some movie or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh,
So in that shamelessness, um, there's a quality of forgiveness. You know, we're, we're forgiving ourselves for who we are. This, this extraordinary mix of manifestations. Yeah. There's a deep acceptance And then in the skillfulness of awareness, it's, it's like Naomi being, you know, intrigued by the people. And, and that's what resolved her deep sense of inadequacy, you know. She didn't do a momentary psychoanalysis and discover how it was related to her mother complex for when she was two, you know. She just engaged what was in front of her and uh, somehow it's like forgot her inadequacy, forgot her story of her inadequacy. So this is part of how Awareness brings about nirvana. We engage what is and we forget all the terrible stories or all the burning desires. When we engage now it becomes more potent in what it is than all the stories about what it should be or what it should not be, or all the things that we really need to invest our energy in because this is not what's important. So this process of pause and notice you know, we, we, we engage it and, and we study what it is to engage it. No. There's, there's something around renunciation. No. Like, can you pause your story? Okay, you're feeling inadequate, but can you listen to this person read the poem they just wrote? Part of Naomi's charm is somebody writes a poem, and in her comments on the poem, she utterly convinces them their poem is a work of genius. 
It's amazing to watch you do it. <laughs> Even as an observer, you're convinced, oh, that poem is a work of genius. I didn't see it until she pointed it out. <laughs> your choice of words, your imagery, your rhythm. And you think, ah, writing a poem's not that hard. And each moment is a work of genius, you know. But somehow, something has to be allowed to stop insisting on its truth for this moment to arise. So as in the process of pause and notice, we're exploring what is it to let go. In the process of breathing out, what is it to let go? Let go and let happen. No? Pause, notice. And in the realm of practice, it's a constant study. No. Let go, let happen. And it goes to the heart of our being. There's, there's, there's no clever saying. that you can intellectualize that will produce this profound shift, you know. No, it asks us to go to the heart of our being. It, it asks us to get in touch with the stories that are so important. and to feel their importance and to see how they define us, how they define the world. And we make contact with them in any way we make contact with them. Sometimes the content is the most tangible part. I am not good enough. Sometimes it's a feeling in our body, you know. I feel kind of jittery and hollow. I feel kind of confused and agitated. We make contact in whatever way we can make contact, in whatever way is most evident. 
and then the, the willingness to experience. You know? But in the inner workings of our being, often there's a deep reluctance to experience. And, and, and often that's why this story is so potent. This is so dangerous, I can't go there. And that's why it's so helpful, the practice of directing attention. Uh, when, when we direct attention, It's like we, it, it helps shift the energy that's going into the story and shifts it into now. And when, when the body breath, when we're working with the body breath, <coughs> when you're caught up in the story, where's the breath? when you're caught up in this story, how is it in your body? When we create this space, And, and then as this practice and, and, the, and the moments of spaciousness become more evident, you know, there can be like an abiding in the space. It's like when the furnace stops and there's quiet in the room and you can feel quiet. You can hear quiet. And then the sounds happen in this space of quiet. When the mind settles, it doesn't have to be very, <clears throat> you know, deep serenity. Just settles enough, you can notice the contrast when the thought arises. Mm. thinking about that. Then the thought is just part of now. Mm. And the thought becomes self-evident. No? And then instead of being defining reality, it's illustrating conditioned existence. And as Thich Gunahan says, when that's seen thoroughly as it is, nothing's lacking. I don't have to get busy making a new and improved me. It's just a thought that comes up. It's just part of what I am.
and when it's attended to closely it's its own gift you know we learn something about inadequacy not just our own but everybody else's you know maybe it's Naomi's inadequacy that makes her um, you know it's it's a very um, dangerous thing to write a poem you know I think for most of us it reminds us of those terrible times at school when we were uh, afflicted by poems and <laughs> teachers trying to punish us with poems <coughs> those incomprehensible things that the teacher was demanding the meaning of um, maybe it's her inadequacy that allows that gives her the genius to draw out a part of you that can let go of all that and be something else the strange way that with insight our shortcomings become gifts our shortcomings rather than being blockages become openings yeah. our shortcomings rather than throwing us into confusion and despair teach us something about how to live and then they're not shortcomings they're actually this strange um, positive expression of being So the way my mind works is to say all this in the service of making, looking at who you are and what's coming up a more plausible, a more attractive proposition. Yeah. <coughs> you know, in Buddhism, in, in the way we translate it, we say, all my entangled karma I now avow I now look at with radical honesty and straightforwardness yeah. it's not a lament about our sinfulness it's it's a curiosity about what it is to be human It, it's not about creating the perfect me it's about an extraordinary kindness towards the me that's already here 
and then it reflects back not only in our willingness to explore, it reflects back on the nature of our effort. You know? When you have to overcome your sinfulness, that requires a certain kind of effort. You, know? you have to be a wrathful deity. When you're exploring, observing and exploring the workings of being alive, um, it's a curiosity. It's like noticing what's going on becomes a more uh, appealing proposition. Hmm. And now that I'm in the middle of this, now that I'm somewhat settled, now that I'm somewhat clear and observant, what the heck's going on in my life? What are the stories I'm telling myself? What is it to see them and to see the depth of them? What is it to change the attitudes and dispositions I have about them? Can our observation like that become more appealing than the rebuttal, you know, of some past hurt, or the anticipation that, that somehow is going to assure your future will be better than your past. Or, interestingly, worse than your past. Oh, it's going to be <coughs> awful. When I do that, oh, it's going to be really, really bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you say so. Um. What is the shift in the workings of your being that allows for observation? that invites it, that commits to it. What is it to breathe in alignment with that commitment? What is it to sit up straight in alignment with it? What is it to walk in alignment with it? These are the questions of Zen. They don't make any sense. But uh, that's why they're so great.
you know. <laughs> they don't make any sense and they help the whole of our existence to make sense. You know? 